I hope you received upon uh, entrance into the sanctuary this morning uh, this uh, bulletin. Uh, if you didn't, you can get one on the way out. Some of you might have been able to grab it. Some of you maybe uh, were not able to grab it. This is uh, what we put together to kind of help us get our hands and our minds around exploring prayer. This is more nebulous than reading through the Bible where you can kind of just check a box, you know, and you can kind of go through and I read today or I didn't re read or I need to catch up. Uh, prayer is a little bit more difficult than that. So a couple of things I wanted to highlight. There's a lot of information in there about electives, about prayer retreats, about things that we're going to do in the future. So you can see that. You can see the plan on the first actual page. And if you flip over, it's already been on the screen, but I just want to highlight it one more time. Uh, the U version has an app that's pretty well known, very easy to work with, where you can actually put in a time to be reminded. You can actually put in your own prayer requests and say, I want to pray for these things. And I want you to remind me at noon or at five o'clock or at three o'clock uh, that I'm going to pray for these things. Part of what we're going to have to do during exploring prayer is each of us are going to have to explore and go on our own journey and then come back to the table with the congregation and say, this is what I've learned. This is how God met me. This is how uh, God answered that prayer that I have been praying for years. Or this is how God met me and didn't answer that prayer, but he met me in the middle of that. If you turn over to the next uh, page, you'll see a monthly prayer focus, and that's the one collective thing that we want to do together. Uh, and so every month, uh, for example, February, we have four things that we're praying for, our core values. And then in March, we're going to pray, take the whole month and pray for the lost. And there's a, a, a little indicator there of what we want to pray for as a church each week. Uh, Kevin already did it this morning. You might not have recognized it, but he already prayed that we would be a loving community. Uh, that's one of our core values. And so when he prayed that during that prayer of supplication, he was praying in that core value. So what we want to do as a church is every week we take one of those prompts and we start praying that as a church together. And then we see what God does. We see how he shows up. We see how he answers these prayers uh, and we think it's going to be a beautiful thing as we seek the Lord together. Let me pray, and then we will jump right in. Father, we pray now uh, that you would make us a people of prayer, and that you would make us a loving community. Uh, we, uh, we believe that's already true. Once you're worked into Mitchell Road, once you're known in this congregation, uh, it's very easy to be loved, but we pray, Father, that you would help those who feel on the fringes or those that don't uh, have any kind of Christian community uh, to find us as a refuge, as a place where they can be truly known and truly loved. Uh, and even as we talk about prayer today and the prayer of suffering, uh, we pray that you would help us to love one another well, to see, as, as Kevin already prayed this morning, to see those that aren't seen by the rest of the world, to open our mind and our eye to those around us, those that we pass by, those in the restaurants, those in the cubicles, those on the soccer fields, those in the waiting room of the hospital, that we would open our mind and our eyes and see those that are in need of grace and love in this uh, fallen world that we live in. Help us today with this topic 
uh, guide us and direct us, I pray. In Christ's name, amen. Luke chapter 18. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterwards he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I'll give her justice so that she'll not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Let's start this day by being honest, can we? Uh, this is generally not one of our favorite passages. Like, I don't think you've probably memorized it. Uh, you don't have this, uh, like, crocheted somewhere. This is probably not hanging on the wall of your dining room. You know, we read this passage, and we think, well, this is a problem. This is a problem with prayer. If I was only more consistent, if I was only more persistent, if I was only more like this uh, widow who constantly went to the Lord time and time again, then he would answer my prayer. But I can't be that persistent. I can't be that consistent in my prayer life. I'm just not. And so I guess God's not going to answer my prayers the way he answered her prayers. I just don't have uh, that amount of um, faithfulness in my life to string together the right words to always go to God and knock on the door to ask him over and over again I try I throw up a Hail Mary every now and then and then I walk away and there is actually some academic evidence uh, that would lead us to that belief Angela Duckworth if you remember in 2016 I believe published uh, the book entitled Grit uh, she was made famous from her TED Talk, as many authors are now. But in that book, she said after years, a longitudinal study, after years of studying what makes a person successful, it's their grit. It's not their passion. It's not their intellect. It's not their talents. It's their tenacity. It's their ability to go back over and over and over again. And so when we read this, we generally feel like, well, it's just not me. I'm just not as persistent as the persistent widow. And you might even think, if you are um, critical of Christianity, well, does this just make Christianity like every other religion? Is it all about just sacrificing enough so that God finally hears us and then he'll finally change his mind? But what I want to do is I want to reframe this for you. I don't like the moniker, the persistent widow. I actually think that's unfair. And if you look at it, that's just a heading the editors gave in the Bible. It's not part of the actual passage, uh, but that's how we term it. I would rather think of this as the suffering widow. Not just the persistent widow, but the suffering widow. And today we talk about suffering prayer. We'll get to that in a second. But here's the first point. Suffering prayer communicates needs. We're all, everybody in this room is going to suffer. 
on different levels and at different times, but all of you, even right now, I would bet everybody in this room is suffering to some degree. We might think our uh, different suffering is petty, but the reality is whatever suffering you feel right now is real. Uh, my kids, when they were nine and eight, uh, my daughters, I don't know where Daniel was at the time, which is normal, uh, but my daughters were like nine and eight, and I told them they have to, they have several chores they always have to do. And uh, one of the chores was every Saturday they have to clean the bathroom. And they wanted to go get ice cream or something like that. And I said, no, you can't go. I'm not going to take you until you clean the bathroom. We've been doing this for the, you know, nine and eight years of your life. You know, every Saturday morning you clean the bathroom. It's the deal. Well, we'd like to go now and then we'll clean the bathroom after. No, no, no. I know how that works too. Then you already have your treat and you want, now it's going to be a fight. You cannot go. I'm not taking you anywhere until you clean the bathroom. We had just watched Annie on Thursday night. And I walk by the bathroom, and they're in there with a broom going, it's a hard knock life for us. It's a hard knock. Singing the song, and instead of kisses, we get kicked. Instead of treats, we get tricked. And I'm like, you're in America. I'm taking you to go get ice cream. You're not orphans. You're fine. But they felt it. They felt the suffering. They thought, oh, here we are having the slave, you know, sweeping up this bathroom that's ours in this big house where we have our own bedrooms. I took them to go get ice cream. <laughs> suffering prayer communicates our needs, but all of us, even though we might be prepared for suffering, it's still difficult. Even though you might have a theology of suffering, it's still hard. D.A. Carson says it this way. He says, suffering is like jumping into a cold lake. You know it's going to be cold. And no matter how prepared and how worked up you are, how ready you are, it's still going to take your breath away. You're still going to gasp. You're, you're still going to come up and say, that was colder than I expected. So here's seven ways that we suffer. Let me give you a little bit of a theology to it and then we'll move on. Uh, first is creation or grief suffering. They're all on the screen behind you if you wanna uh, write these down. Creation or grief suffering is a general suffering as part of living in this fallen world. Our bodies are gonna get old, we're gonna ache, there's a point where you don't recover as well as you used to uh, after a day of skiing or whatever. Uh, we have to deal with rain, we have to deal with just the suffering of creation. There's consequential suffering. Consequential suffering is different than creation suffering in that it's a right consequence of an action that you did that created suffering. Uh, you smoked a bunch of cigarettes, you got lung cancer. It's, that's a natural consequence of the suffering. There's victim suffering. Uh, victim suffering is uh, when somebody sins against you in a harmful way. This is maybe overplayed today. So I just want to kind of caution us about that. But some people are very much uh, victims of suffering. There's empathetic suffering. This is an interesting one. You probably haven't thought about this as suffering, but when you watch somebody else suffer, a friend, a loved one, somebody who's in pain, you actually start to suffer with them because of empathy, which we hope you have. Uh, and so you take that on and you suffer with them. There's collective suffering. You suffer because you're a part of a, a larger group that's been disenfranchised. Uh, there's holiness or discipline suffering. 
There is a suffering which is godly that comes with beating your bodies in submission to following God in holiness. And then there's uh, missional or oppositional suffering, which comes with suffering for just being a Christian. Now, interestingly, when we go to the widow, she had several of these, and you probably have several of these, or over your lifetime, you will. For the widow, uh, she had the grief of loss. She was suffering because she's a widow. There's nobody to hold her at night anymore. She's got to wake up and have breakfast by herself. She's got to go to bed by herself. She goes to talk to her husband and he's not there anymore. Some of you know that pain and she's suffering. She's suffering because she's also a part of a people group that aren't cared for. Uh, widows weren't cared for very much that day. And so that's why over and over again in the scriptures it says care for the widows, care for the fatherless. Because now she's part of a collective people group that are just on the outskirts. No money resources, uh, nobody to watch over her or protect her. There's a fourth type of suffering. She had an injustice lobbied against her. If you look here at the text, if verse 3, it says, Give me justice against my adversary. So not only was she dealing with being a part of a disenfranchised group, having lost her husband, having personal grief, she now has somebody who's against her, somebody who's trying to get after her for whatever reason. We don't know the reason, it's a parable. And then the other type of suffering is this authority figure. Not a good judge, not a good ruler, uh, not a great guy, but a person who could adjudicate her claims who doesn't respect men, and certainly not widows, and doesn't fear God. And the only one that can solve her problem, that's the guy in charge. And so she is suffering greatly. Now, second point, suffering prayer relinquishes control. This is going to be hard. Because what happens when we suffer is this. When you start to suffer, when I start to suffer, we generally go one of two ways. You go to seeking comfort. How do I get out of this as quickly as possible? What pill do I need to take? What thing do I need to buy? How do I get out of this suffering as quickly as I can? Or you go to control. How do I manage this so this never happens to me again? But what a prayer with suffering does is it relinquishes control. The reason why Jesus told us this parable is not to make us feel shame, not to make us feel like we're not doing enough, we're not being enough. Look at what it says in verse one. He told them a parable to the effect that they always ought to pray and not lose heart. He told them this parable. So if that's the mindset that Jesus gave us, I'm telling you this so you don't lose heart, then this has to be encouraging to us. Let me put it very bluntly. The point of this parable is not be the persistent widow. Be as faithful as a persistent widow and then God will answer your prayers and he'll relieve you of that burden of suffering. The point of the parable is this. You don't have to be the persistent widow. You don't have to be the persistent widow because you have a father in heaven who's not like this judge. She had to be the persistent widow because she had this judge who neither feared God nor respected men, and she had to go after it again and again and again. But you don't have to do that. 
because you have a father in heaven who knows you, hears you, and loves you. The point is not be the persistent widow. The point is you don't have to be the persistent widow. The point is you can pray a prayer of relinquishment. Uh, The point is you can say to your adversaries, God will judge my claim. And if she had an adversary, we probably do too. And I doubt it's a neighbor. Maybe some of you are uh, rightly oppressed by your neighbor who is parking their car in your yard or, uh, you know, painting the fence the wrong color or, you know, spraying Roundup on your bushes. Like, maybe that's one of you. But most of us in this room, our adversary is our own hearts. And our hearts constantly tell us, you're not good enough. You never have been. Why would God ever love you? You're not a good husband, you're not a good wife, you're not a good friend. If you were smarter, you'd be married by now. If you were prettier, you'd be loved by now. If you were a better parent, your kids wouldn't be prodigals. Our hearts lay claims against us time and time again and wear us down. And that's why we have to continually go to the gospel of grace and remind us that God knows everything about you and still loves you and has fully forgiven you and longs to be with you. And yet in this life, all of us suffer And we're all going to suffer, but it's the Christian who says, now I'll take this suffering that I'm feeling and I'm going to relinquish control over to you, Lord. Margaret Clarkson said it this way. And let me give you some background on uh, Clarkson. She wrote a book that I have told many of you about. It's entitled, Grace Grows Best in Winter. And it's probably one of my top 10 it's one of the books I think I dog-eared like every page. You know, it's just some point you just got to quit underlining because you're like, I'm just underlining the whole book. Um, she had suffered with a lifelong illness and wrote this beautiful book about how in the winter of life, that's when grace actually grows best. That's when you actually understand empathy and love. She writes, our suffering itself may become a form of prayer. Let me just stop there. When you suffer, and we do, have you thought about that? Allowing your suffering, instead of angst, instead of kicking against the goads, of raising a fist to God, or instead of seeking control or comfort, you take that suffering, you say, this is going to become prayer for me. If we can learn to let submission, love, even praise, ascend to God through it. It is a wonderful and awesome thing when in the grip of severe pain or sorrow to look at the face of God and say, I bring you this now. Accept it for the sake of the Lord Jesus. See, Christ is better. Christ is better than seeking comfort. Christ is better than seeking control. Having a relationship with Christ when you suffer, going to him is better than anything else because to whom else will you go when you suffer? Where else are we going to go? Buddhism tells us suffering isn't real. It's just an illusion. Just get over it. Moralism, uh, which tells you if you were this or this or this, you wouldn't be suffering in this way. If you were just a better person. Fatalism 
Laissez-faire, well, this is just going to happen to everybody. You might as well just accept it. Or Christianity that says in the middle of your suffering, you have a suffering God that you can go to, and your suffering can form into a prayer that you take to the Lord and you form and develop intimacy with him. Our suffering becomes a way that we start to reimagine healing and hope and love and joy. It is, I think, the one thing that's going to show this world that we as followers of Christ are different. If we just continually play the victim card like everybody else does, if we continually say it's those other people's faults and if only they quit bothering us or only we got the right people in office or only if that neighbor would quit doing this or only I got the right ball, everybody else plays that. Christians are the people that in the midst of suffering have joy, have peace, relinquish control and wait on the Lord. Now I know it's not easy because look at verse seven. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give them justice. He will give justice to them speedily. And that's the dilemma, isn't it? A suffering prayer of relinquishment bridges that gap of time between when you want relief, when you want justice, and when God gives it. And nobody thinks that God gives it quick enough. All of us want God to give it quicker, you know? But with the Lord, it's like a, a thousand days is like a day, a thousand years is like a day, and a day is like a thousand years. He's working on a different time frame. We generally assume that God is up there watching us, uh, kind of like, uh, go through this trial until we're sanctified enough that he's going to give us some relief. But what if God is longing to be with you too? What if we could relinquish control of having to know how God is working all things together for his good and why in the time frame he's allowing us to suffer for this length? Because it's the prayer of every Christian, whether the ones killed on the fields of Cambodia or the Hutus and Tutsis who... I'll probably speak about in a couple of weeks, or the enslaved Americans, or those during Jim Crow, or, or those that are in China right now, or, or those that are suffering in any number of ways. It's the Christian who says, how long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? That is the prayer of the Christian. It's a prayer of relinquishment. It's a prayer of faith. It's a prayer of trust. It's a prayer of hope. It's a prayer of healing. It's a prayer of love. It's even a prayer of joy. To say, I have a God who knows all of these things that I'm suffering. How long, O oh Lord, you could speed this up. But if you don't, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to suffer here until you bring me home. St. Augustine says it this way. When you talk about things like suffering, you have to go to the bigs, Clarkson, Augustine. Uh, you can't deal with the lower level theologians. The Lord our God, the word of God, the word made flesh, the son of the father, the son of God, the son of man, exalted that he might create us, humbled that he might recreate us, walking among men, suffering what is human, concealing what is divine. God himself did that, suffering what is healing, concealing what is divine. Let every sigh be a panting 
after Christ. That is a great, I've told you this before, just once in my life I'd like to write a sentence like that. Just once. Every sigh, every, how long, O Lord, let it be a panting after Christ. Let that most beautiful one who loved even the ugly that he might make them beautiful, let him be longed for. Hurry to him alone. Sigh for him. Third point. Suffering prayer reveals faith. If you look at the very end of this, 8B as we call it, let me read 8. I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth. In other words, is he going to look, is he going to see the Son of Man, is he going to see us in the middle of our suffering as Christians practicing faith, trusting him, following after him? Now, faith is a gift, and it's a gift that we need or to be converted, actually. Um, and what does it look like? What does it, what does it mean to be uh, converted? You know, it, look, it used to, and maybe you grew up this way, thinking that to be converted meant you had your life together, your life was easy and perfect, uh, you kept a good witness, uh, you had the moral high ground. But a life of faith, a, a conversion in this day and age is actually a little bit um, different. It's a life of learning to suffer with joy and hope and renewal. And this passage actually gives us the clue. Now, if you have your Bible, and I encourage you to bring your Bible or your device. I mean, stuff is on the screen, but you need, you need to see it. That's just me. Maybe I'm old school there. But in Luke chapter 18, you'll see the whole context of the passage because Luke 18 is in the context of now examples of people who had a life of faith and people who didn't. The first example we see right after this is the Pharisee who said, thank you that I'm not like these other men. That's a life not of faith. And then a little bit after that, we're gonna see the rich young ruler who said, I've kept everything that you want me to do. What else do I need to do? I've, I've done all the moral things. And then opposed to those two characters, we see the tax collector. And the tax collector beat his chest and said, God, be merciful to me. Then we see the children who come to him, a life of faith. And then we see the blind beggar who cries out for help and for hope. And then we see Zacchaeus, whose heart has changed and starts to live a life of faith. So actually in Luke 18, this parable is gonna extract all the way out so that we see examples of who lives by faith and who doesn't. And it shows us this life of faith, a life of learning how to have joy in the middle of pain. And can, can I say this? Uh, one of the most humbling uh, wonderful joys of my life is uh, being a pastor of a church such as this where I take this the right way I get to watch you suffer we so many phone I had so many phone calls yesterday people that are suffering people don't call when they're you know they won the soccer game they call because they're suffering and uh, so many people I get to watch who are suffering in this congregation and say, and yet I will trust God. So many people like um, Gus Brinson, who's been dealing with a bad back for what, like three or four years now, and just cannot find any relief. 
who sends me texts of encouragement with scripture in it when he's the one literally flat on his back in pain. Now, there's so many people who have lost spouses or uh, been in difficult situations who say, yet I will trust God in the middle of this. It is such a beautiful part of Christian community that we learn to dance to a, a song and a music that nobody can hear but Christians. Richard Warmbrand said it this way. He said, there once was a fiddler who played so beautifully that everybody danced. A deaf man could not hear the music, consider them all insane. Those who are with Jesus in suffering hear this music to which other men are deaf. They dance and do not care if they're considered insane. That's the Christian right there. The Christian is when I, he I hear the music of the gospel. I hear the music of sovereignty. I hear the music of God's grace to me. And although it makes no sense, this peace that passes understanding, I'm going to dance for joy because of who my God is crying out at the same time, how long, O oh Lord? Now, I need to do this one last thing, and we got to get to communion here. Uh, suffering prayer, trust community. Um, this is going to, um, just give me a, two minutes uh, to do a little bit of academic work, if you could. Um, there's a literary structure in the Bible called chiasms, where there are parallels. That's how most a large majority of biblical writers write. There is a formula for literary framework by which most of them write, which you don't probably know. But you know formulas, right? So yesterday I was writing a paper for my uh, doctorate and I, I can't listen to music when I write because it actually distracts me too much. Like I'm like, huh, that was interesting. I start rewinding it. So sometimes I have to get in my living room and I put on the most boring show I can find, like something with French subtitles, because I just have to have something on in the background. I could never study in the library. I always had to study in Starbucks. I have to have some kind of something in the background, but it can't be music, because I'll actually get too engaged um, mentally into that. I had this show on the other day. I'm not going to tell you the name of it, but this guy, plane wreck in the Arctic. You can probably figure out the name of the show, Arctic. It, spoiler alert. Uh, I'm going to tell you how it ends. It's not worth watching anyway. But he, he dies. I mean, he's, no, he didn't die. He's in the uh, Arctic. Somebody else crashes trying to find him. And uh, the whole thing comes. And there's finally, the last five minutes, there's this plane. And now I'm engaged. Not writing my paper. Now I'm engaged. And there's uh, this helicopter that comes. And he lights his final flare. And uh, they don't see it. And then he puts his jacket. And he burns his only jacket. And he's waving it. And uh, he's got this other girl that he rescued from the plane crash with him. And he does a thing and the helicopter turns and goes towards him and doesn't see him and then goes away. And, and he sits with the girl and holds her hand and sighs. And there's no hope on the horizon. And then the movie ends. And I thought, that's not the formula. That's not how this works. That was the roll credits. They're just stuck there in the Arctic holding hands. No, no resolution. This is not Hallmark, people. We all know how this should work. You have rising climax. You know you have uh, some kind of thing at the top. And then you have resolution out. We all know the formula. It didn't work that way. I was frustrated the whole rest of the day. The formula, a chiastic formula, 
means that there's always a parallel. In particular, in Luke, there's a parallel passage that we can only understand Luke 18 if we understand the parallel parable, which is Luke 11. Let me read it to you. And he said to them, which of you has a friend who will go to him at midnight and say to his friend, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut. My children are now in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and will give him anything because he is a friend, yet because of his impudence, which could also be translated persistence or shamelessness, he will not rise and give him whatever, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks it will be open. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will give will instead of a fish give him a serpent, or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give you the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Final points. Suffering is real, but also is Christian community. This is a parallel text. Everybody in this day and age who were Jewish, who read Luke, would have said, oh, the parallel to this is Luke 11, to the persistent widow. And in Luke 11, we see what Christian community looks like. Not an unmerciful judge, not an unmerciful judge, but a friend who even though they're bothered by the late hour, they're gonna get up and give bread. And we see that suffering is real, but also a good heavenly father. And we see at this communion table, that it's the prayer of suffering that saved the world. It's the prayer of, Lord, if you could take this cup from me, but not my will, but your will be done. That suffering prayer is what has saved the world. And so friends, as we suffer, because we're all going to, and we all are, let's turn it into a prayer. Let's dance before the throne. Let's enjoy our Savior. Let's pray prayers of healing and hope and love. Let's be the Christian community. And let's trust that we have a heavenly Father who sees and knows and loves. In the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. And Father, now we come to this table where we... So, Father, we've already prayed that we would be a loving community. Now, as we talk about suffering and suffering prayer, we pray that you would give us uh, the help we need. We pray even right now uh, that you would help us to uh, think about those in our lives, those in this congregation we know who are suffering, who need your help, and who need healing, and who need hope. We bring uh, just those names to you now of those that we know um, who are living lives of suffering. And Father, we pray that you would remind us, we're gonna read it, but pray that you would remind our hearts that you are a good heavenly Father who gives good gifts and you will 
speedily and the timing of your economy bring justice. Uh, and we pray you would do that quickly. Uh, and we pray that you would help us now as we read your word. We pray in your name. Amen. Luke chapter 18. He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet becoming this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> if we're honest, and let's start every sermon with trying to be honest, can we? Uh, if we're honest, most of us don't like this parable at all. Uh, there's so much about it that kind of ruins our sensibilities. And most of us would probably say, this is the problem with prayer. Uh, the, I guess I, I'm not persistent enough. I'm not consistent enough. I, I, if I was just like this persistent widow, I mean, God's telling me this parable. If I was like this persistent widow, I would come to God over and over again. Finally, he would answer my prayers because he answered her prayers. But the problem is I just can't string together even a few days of prayer. I'll pray for something and then I'll forget. And I'm not this persistent. I'm not this consistent. I can't, I can't keep going to God. I don't know the right words. And this parable actually is is frustrating to me. There's actually some academics that back up that claim and that feeling. Angela Duckworth, you might remember, in 2016, uh, published that book, which is now pretty popular, entitled Grit. And what she discovered after a longitudinal study is this. What makes a person successful is not their passion, not their abilities, not their talents, it's their tenacity. It's their ability, their grit, their ability to stay with something for a long period of time with their passion and to persevere. And so you take that, which is kind of in our culture, and you take Luke chapter 18 and you just kind of throw up your hands. And maybe uh, you're critical of Christianity. And you look at this text and you say, well, this kind of just shows that Christianity is like every other religion. If I badger God long enough, if I flagellate myself long enough, if I keep going long enough, eventually I'll finally convince him and he'll give in. Is that what this text, is this what this parable is saying? But what I want to do is I want to reframe it. Because at the top of your text, most likely in your Bibles, it says a parable of the persistent widow. But that language is not anywhere in the actual parable. And I think it's a bad moniker. I think this should be the suffering widow. It's the parable of the suffering widow who's learning how to pray through her suffering. And so that's what we're gonna talk about today, suffering prayer, a real joyous topic, suffering prayer. Here's the first point, suffering prayer communicates needs. 
A suffering prayer communicates needs. Now look, let's just continue with the honesty. All of us in this life are going to suffer. And let me take it a little bit deeper. Everybody in this room right now on some level is suffering. It might seem minor, the suffering that you have compared to others, but all of us are suffering. Years ago, uh, Kate and Maggie were like nine and eight, and they wanted to uh, go get ice cream or something like that. I think it was ice cream. And it was a Saturday morning, and I said, no, you're not going to go get ice cream. Uh, You know, Saturday morning, Elizabeth was out of town, I think, uh, you know that you clean your bathroom every Saturday morning. You haven't cleaned your bathroom. We're not even going to talk about anything else until you clean your bathroom. And they're like, well, we'll clean our bathroom after if you take us to get ice cream now. I'm like, no, no, I've been around the block. I know how that works. You're going to get your ice cream, and then the rest of the afternoon is going to be a fight to clean the bathroom. You have to clean the bathroom now, and then maybe we'll consider going to get ice cream. And we had watched Annie earlier in that week, and so they begrudgingly go into the bathroom. They've got the broom, the whole thing. I walk by the bathroom, and I literally hear them singing. It's a hard knock life for us. It's a hard knock life for, you know, instead of treats, we get tricked. Instead of kisses, we get kicked. And I was like, no ice cream. You're not orphans. You're fine. You're not suffering. You live in America. You have your own bathroom. You have your own bedrooms. Like nobody here is suffering. What are you doing? I caved. I took him to go get ice cream anyway. But all of us, in their little worlds, they were suffering, right? All of us are going to suffer. And it's almost impossible to be prepared for it. D.A. Carson says suffering is like jumping into a cold lake or pool. No matter how ready you are, no matter how worked up you are, as soon as you jump in, it's going to take your breath away every time. There's seven different types of suffering biblically. Let me give you a little bit of a, a theology around this. First of all, there's creation or grief suffering, a broad category where every inch of this world has been damaged and harmed <coughs> excuse me, by sin. And so our bodies are going to break down. You're going to have days of uh, cold and rain. Uh, there's going to be car wrecks. It, it's just creation suffering. It's part of life. There's consequential suffering. Uh, That's where you suffer because of an act that you've done. And so we need to admit that. Sometimes you bring the suffering on yourself. You have smoked for 50 years and then you get lung cancer. It's the consequence of the action. There's victim suffering. Suffering when somebody does something against you and you're the victim. Let me just say this. Uh, Probably overplayed a little bit in our culture right now. So don't go there uh, too quickly. Number four, there's empathetic suffering. You probably have never thought about suffering this way, but you see a friend in pain. You see a a parent who is dying. You see a friend who is frustrated, and you empathize with them, and you actually suffer while they're suffering because you love them and you know them, and they're hurting. That's empathetic suffering happening for people who are empathetic on the low level continually. There's collective suffering. It's when you suffer because you're a part of a larger uh, collective group uh, that's impressed, that doesn't have justice. There's holiness or discipline suffering where you're beating your body into submission and you're giving up one thing for the sake of holiness. There's a suffering 
that comes with that, that needs to be recognized. So not all suffering is bad. And then there's oppositional or missional suffering, which is suffering for being a Christian, uh, being opposed because you hold to the claims of Christ. Now, if you think back through this widow, she had a ton of these, and you probably do too. But the widow, she had, she had lost her husband. So there's grief, there's loss, there's personal pain that she's experienced. She wakes up in the morning and she has her eggs by herself. She turns over in her bed and it's cold. She goes, hey, and nobody's there to actually talk to. So she's experiencing that. She also has a cultural uh, collective problem because widows weren't cared for. Now she doesn't have resource streams of money. She doesn't have anybody to protect her. She's in this collective group that is largely disenfranchised in this day and age. That's why all the time scripture says, take care of the fatherless, take care of the orphans, take care of the widows, because those three people collectively uh, were never protected or cared for. She's experiencing some kind of injustice against her. So beyond those two things, Look at what it says uh, in verse three. Give me justice against my adversary. Somebody has done an injustice to her. Then she also has this. She has the injustice of an authority figure over her who neither respects men nor fears God and doesn't care a bit about her. And so it's not like she has a great uh, government figure that she can appeal to. She has all of those things all wrapped up in one. And her suffering prayer is communicating her needs. This is what I need. I need, I need you to adjudicate this claim for my adversary. I need you to help me. But she needs actually so much more than that. Point number two. This suffering prayer, not only does it communicate needs, but suffering prayer will relinquish control. Look at verse eight. I tell you, oh, verse seven, I'm sorry. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry out day and night? And will he not delay over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Now, this whole parable, as she's learning to relinquish control, as she's learning to say, I, I don't have control over these things, this whole parable is intended not to depress you, not to make you feel like you've got to do better, you've got to be like this persistent widow. This whole parable is intended so that you won't lose heart. That's what it says in verse 1. He told them a parable to the effect that they should always pray and not to lose heart. So let me get right to the point of the parable. The point of the parable is not be the persistent widow and then God will answer your prayers. The point of the parable is this. You actually don't have to be the persistent widow because God is not like this judge. God's merciful and God's kind. Uh, God loves you and God knows you. He will not delay and he will speedily answer your claims. The point is not be the persistent widow. The point is you don't have to be the persistent widow because we have a heavenly father who's not like this immoral judge. And we have adversaries too, like she has an adversary. You might have an adversary who's your neighbor, you know, maybe by about Many of you have a, a neighbor who constantly parks their car on your yard or, you know, 
grabs Roundup and sprays your bushes or paints the fence the wrong color. You probably don't have, maybe some of you have adversaries, but you generally look like nice, kind people, so you probably live this world pretty kind of straight and narrow. But all of us have the adversary of our own heart. And our own hearts constantly claim, you're not good enough. You're too much of a sinner. That thing you did, you'll never get over it. If only you were prettier, then you'd be married. If only you were smarter, then you'd make more money. If only you were better, then you wouldn't have these struggles in life. Our own heart constantly is telling us what's wrong with us and why we can't be better than we are. And maybe part of our own suffering is learning to take that and relinquish that to the Lord and say, Lord, help me with that. Uh, learning to make, as we're going to learn from Margaret Clarkson, any type of suffering a prayer. Margaret Clarkson uh, suffered a lifelong illness, and she's one of my favorite authors. She wrote a book entitled Grace Grows Best in Winter, and it's one of my top 10 favorite books. Matter of fact, I, I, I have like every page dog-eared, and I eventually just gave up underlining, because what's the point? If you're underlining every sentence, what's the point of underlining it, right? And she, it's a brilliant work that was birthed through her own personal suffering, and in it she writes, our suffering itself may become a form of prayer. If we can learn to let submission Love and even praise ascend to God through it. It is a wonderful and awesome thing when in the grip of severe pain or sorrow to look upon the face of God and say, I bring you this now. Accept it for the sake of Lord Jesus. A suffering prayer of relinquishedness. This is my suffering. I'm bringing it to you. Here's why that's important. When we suffer, we typically do one of two things. You typically either seek control. I've got to find a way to manage this so it never happens to me again. Or you seek comfort. How do I get to the high ground? How do I just get my way out of this? How do I make this stop? What do I need to buy? What pill do I need to take? We typically seek one of those two things. And what, what Clarkson argues is this. Instead, take Christ. Instead, take that suffering, and instead of trying to avoid it and control it or seek comfort, instead, take that suffering, understand it, feel it, and use it as a pathway to intimacy with God. Use it as a form of prayer. Use it as a way to grow closer to who your God is. Because, can we be frank here? To whom else will you go when you suffer? You run the Buddhism, it says suffering isn't even real. It's just an illusion of your imagination, so get over it. Uh, you can run a fatalism. Uh, this is just going to say la vie. This is just going to happen. It's going to happen to everybody, so, you know, buck it up. You could run a moralism. If I was a better person, uh, I would not have to do this. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to be better, and then maybe I won't suffer, and God will finally get me that BMW. You know, like a prosperity gospel kind of thing. Or you can go to Christ, who is the only God who suffers with us, who's willing to come to where we are, take on human form, and enter our suffering 
Now, it doesn't mean that it's easy, because look at what it says in verse 7 and 8. Will he delay long after them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. But that's the problem, isn't it? That, that God's economy of time, of when he gives us justice speedily, when he solves our longings, when he solves our pain, is not on our timeline. We want him to work quicker. We've never said, oh, God worked way too quick. We've, we've never said that. We're always like, God, why aren't you working? Why aren't you solving this? Why am I in this problem? Why am I dealing with this? And that prayer of relinquishment is giving over control and is being willing to say the Christian prayer that has been said throughout centuries, across countries, from people enslaved to people during the Jim Crow era to Christians and Chinese uh, oppression right now, to people on the killing fields of Cambodia, to the Hutus and Tutsis who I'll talk about in a couple weeks, the prayer of the Christian has always been, how long, O oh Lord? How long, O oh Lord, will we have to do this? But that's a prayer of faith. And it's a prayer of hope. And it's a prayer knowing that God is there and he answers prayer. But it is the Christian prayer to constantly pray, how long, O oh Lord, will this happen? And it's a beautiful prayer. Here's why. Because Augustine says this. And you know, when you talk about suffering, you can't go to the, the smaller level theologians. You got to go to the big dogs. Margaret Clarkson, St. Augustine. Augustine says, this Lord, our God, the word of God, the word made flesh, the son of the father, the son of God, the son of man, exalted that he might create us, humbled that he might recreate us, Walking among men, suffering what is human. You see, that's what Augustine says. Don't forget you have a God that suffers with you. Concealing what is divine. He too, not knowing the full thing. I, the son of man, knows the day or hour. Let every sigh be a panting after Christ. Now, I've said this before, but let me say it again. Just one time in my life, I'd like to write a sentence like that. Just once. That's all I need. Let every, every time you go, how long, O oh Lord, am I going to be single? How long am I going to have to put up with this husband, this prodigal, this employee, this boss, this government, this president, this teacher, this ailment? But what if you could reframe it? that you're not kicking against the goads, but every sigh actually becomes a panting after Christ. Let that most beautiful one who loved even the ugly that he might make him beautiful, let him be longed for. Hurry to him alone and sigh for him. What if uh, your suffering is meant to give you the one thing that you're actually longing for, which is deep abiding love and intimacy with Christ? Number three, suffering prayer reveals faith. I'll go quickly here. Uh, but it says at the very end, will the Son of Man, when he comes, will he find faith on earth? Now, faith, how do you see faith? We used to say in the Christian South, right? We used to say, oh, faith, a person who has faith, they have a good witness, they have a good morality, they have everything together. But that's not really what faith is. Faith is learning to trust God with the things that are outside of your control and learning to trust that he's a good heavenly father. In Luke chapter 18, 
shows us a person of faith and people that don't have faith. So if you have your Bibles, look at Luke 18. Not everybody has your Bibles. Some use devices. I know it's all on the screen, but I'm kind of old-fashioned about just having your Bible and seeing it. I'm not going to judge you if you don't have your Bibles, um, but you just won't get out as much out of the sermon. Luke chapter 18, if you look at the whole chapter after this, he says, will you find faith on earth? And then he immediately goes into the Pharisee and the tax collector. One who says, I thank you, I'm not like these other men. There's no faith there. And then the tax collector who says, God be merciful to me, a sinner. He immediately shows us that dichotomy. And then he goes to the children. Let all the children come to me. They're the ones that have faith. They just jump right in my lap. They're willing to ask me for anything. And then he goes right from that to the rich young ruler the person that had all the moral underpinnings that thought everything was right. And then he goes right from that to the blind beggar, the one who was willing to cry out the prayer of relinquishment, God, save me from my blindness. The whole thing is to show us what life should look like as a life of faith. And can I say this, friends, I'm, I'm increasingly convinced, and I told you for years, part of my job as your pastor is to prepare you for persecution. I know you think you're persecuted. We're not. We're not anywhere. I mean, it's a, it's a slap in the face to the Christians uh, who are being persecuted for us as Americans to think that we're persecuted just because uh, the right political figures aren't in the office. We're nowhere close to being persecuted in this country. But my, my job is to prepare you for it. And if it comes and when it comes, because it'll come to every country eventually, what the Christian does, what sets the Christian apart is learning how to have joy in the midst of their suffering, learning how to have hope in the midst of their persecution, learning how to dance when they're oppressed, uh, learning how to be the ones that have a faith and a love and a life that is greater than the comforts of this world that we live in. That's why Richard Warmbrand said this, there was once a fiddler who played so beautifully that everybody danced. A deaf man could not hear the music, consider them all insane. Those who are with Jesus in suffering hear the music to which the other men are deaf and they dance and they don't care if they're considered insane. Can I say one of the greatest joys of being a pastor of this church? And I don't speak this way often, but uh, let me say it. One of the greatest privileges of pastoring this church is this, and take this the right way. I get to see a lot of you suffer. I made several phone calls I had the field yesterday, and nobody calls me on a Saturday when their kid won the soccer game. You call because somebody's suffering. There's a problem, there's pain. And over my years here, I've seen so many people suffer deeply with intense joy. I think he's watching right now, uh, he hasn't been here in a long time, but I think of Gus Brinson, a ruling elder of this church who's had so many back surgeries you can't find any relief and has been suffering for years. And yet he does it with a, a faith and a joy and a hope. And not just to highlight one person, because there's so many other people who have lost loved ones, who have buried kids, who are in difficult situations in uh, their employment, or have lost their business, who have suffered and do it with joy and with faith and say, it is well with my soul, as well as saying, how long, O oh Lord? 
And it has been a joy and a privilege to watch that work out in a congregation of faith. So keep on. Because that's what's going to change this world, is when we are willing to show this world that we have a heavenly Father who knows us and loves us and we can trust him with whatever he brings in our lives. Now, one last point. Suffering prayer trusts community. To make this point, give me just um, one minute to get a little bit academic. Uh, We're all taught in like eighth grade that there is uh, a plot rising action, climax, a problem, resolution, right? Like that is the plot line. I, I watched a movie yesterday, which makes me sound like I'm not doing on anything on a Saturday. Not true. I was working on a paper for my uh, PhD, and uh, I can't listen to music while I do it because I actually get too engaged in the music. I'm like, is that a D minor? You know, so I can't, I have to actually not listen to music. So I have to put on like a show which hopefully has like French subtitles or something, just background noise. I could never study in the library, always had to study in Starbucks. I have to have something in the background. So I put on this uh, stupid movie. I pick an awful movie, put it on just so I could have it in the background about somebody who gets caught in a plane wreck in the Arctic. And you know, the, the scene goes on and now I'm not doing my paper, now I'm watching the movie. Um, but the scene goes on and at the last minute of the scene, he rescues this other girl who was coming to save him. Her helicopter goes down and then he kind of gets her at the very end and they see the helicopter coming and he's got his last flare. You know, the other flare he used to fight off a polar bear. I mean, it's all very formulaic, right? You know, and now he's got his last flare and he lights it and the people are on the helicopter way away and they don't see him. So he takes off his jacket, his only jacket. And he burns now his jacket with this stick and he's flying it over and the helicopter turns towards them and then it turns the other way and goes away. And he cuddles with this girl who's also dying and he holds her hand. And then the credits rolled. And I thought, they don't know how this is supposed to work. It was like a Norwegian film. I'm like, Norwegian people are mean and hard. Like they just died in the Arctic. That was, this is not Hallmark. This is supposed to resolve. They're supposed to go to the city. They're supposed to have like, this is how the plot works. Well, we have this certain plot line that we think will happen called, you know, rising action, climax, resolution. What happened with the Hebrew people is they write in the chiasm. And here's where it gets academic. I won't spend too much time. There's a there's a parallel passage that usually goes with other passages. And there's a parallel passage to Luke 18 that you have to know to understand Luke 18. And it's Luke 11. And any Hebrew person, when they read Luke 18, which we immediately have problems with, the Hebrews would have not had a problem with it because they would have known immediately, oh, this is balanced with Luke 11. Luke 11 says this, and he said to them, which of you has a friend who will go into midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door's now shut. My children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you though, he will not get up and give him anything He will give up and give him anything because he is a friend. Yet because his impudence or shamelessness, or actually that word can be translated persistence, he will rise and give him what he needs. 
And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it shall be opened. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how the good gives good give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Just two quick points here. Suffering is real, but also is Christian community. And here, because he's a friend, this knock on the door, he says, oh, gosh, Bob is here again, but he's a friend. I'll give him bread and whatever he needs. That's what Christian and Christian community does. And suffering is real, but also is a good heavenly father. You have a good heavenly father who knows you, who knows your pain, who knows your needs, who knows your longings, and who is willing to let his son suffer. I mean, God himself prayed the prayer of how long, O Lord. And it's the prayer of suffering that saved the world. God, if you would take this cup from me, please take it. But if not your will, my will, your will be done. There's a prayer of agony, a prayer of suffering that actually saved the world and saved you and saved me. And it's what we celebrate at this table where we talk about God's body being ripped apart and his blood being poured out so that we would know in this world when we suffer, we're not alone. We have a heavenly father to appeal to and we can be free and we can dance and we can have joy and we can have hope because of how great our God is. So as we take this bread and this wine, may that be your prayer. Not that you're going to try better, not that you're going to be more persistent, that you have such a good, loving, heavenly father who will one day work all things speedily for your good in his glory. Now, Father, we come to this table.